Welcome to That's What Alaska Said, Episode 2. Today we are hanging out with Paul, aka Red, and Bear, two Air Force pararescuemen from Alaska's Air National Guard 212th Rescue Squadron. Hey, Red. Hey, Jess. How's it going? Good. How are you? Good. I'm great. Here we are, round two. Woohoo! Of uh, That's What Alaska Said. Episode two. Episode two. And we are lucky enough to be hanging out with Paul and Bear, uh, two pararescuemen from Alaska. Hi, Paul. Hi, Bear. Hey. Hi, Brad. <laughs> How's it going? <laughs> Thanks for joining us. Yes. Our pleasure. Yeah. Um, so I've known you guys for quite some time now, and so I really appreciate you guys being here with us. And uh, we're looking forward to um, having you guys share a little bit about uh, yourselves and uh, being a PJ, also pararescue, but also known as PJ for para-jumper. And correct me if I get anything wrong at all. Um, yeah, it's a really incredible job, and uh, we'd love to hear and learn more about it. And uh, that's what we're doing here. Yeah, let's just uh, let's jump into a little bit of um, what is a pararescue and what is the history and how did you get into it? Um, whichever wants to start, just go ahead and say your name and give us a little bit of history. You go, Bear. All right, uh, so this is Bear. Um, pararescue is uh, the Air Force. It's a component of the Air Force. It's a job in the Air Force does search and rescue, both civil and combat search and rescue. In Alaska, we get to do a lot of civil rescue, but it's the Department of Defense's only dedicated search and rescue force. So everybody else does it as kind of a secondary mission where our job is solely search and rescue and that's just what we do. And so that's kind of fun, um, you know, as a military person to be, you know, strictly search and rescue. And we, <clears throat> Have a bunch of skills we can rescue people on the side of a mountain out in the middle of the ocean underwater we can parachute in we can you know uh scuba dive whatever just kind of all points in between which is it makes a fun day at work because you never know what you're going to be doing yeah right that's awesome and how, uh, i was gonna say uh, oh, i was gonna say how, how did you get into it yeah well i got into it uh, it was in high school and wanted to get away from Minnesota just to get away from my parents a little bit <laughs> and my family and uh, so when I turned 18 I joined the Air Force and uh, I was going to be a electronic person in the military and then I went to basic training I saw this video and it said hey you want to do pararescue and I'm like hell yeah they're like <laughs> jumping on the so I went and uh, tried out and I think there was about a hundred of us that tried out and by the end of the year, it only took a year back then. At Twelve of the guys graduated. So Out of 100? Yeah. A lot of just that didn't pass or a lot of that were like, this is not for me? Or both? A little bit of a each. A little bit yes. of Yes and yeah. yes, yeah. right? Yep. Yep. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. So how long have you been a pararescue? Um, so I joined in 83, and uh, I was a PJ for 25 years. Till 2008, and now I still work at the 212th as a scheduler, boat operator, 
different shit they yeah. throw at me, but nice. it's, it's all fun. <laughs> the everything guy. You're yeah. kind of the everything guy. And you don't work, you're not a pararescue either? No, I retired in 2017, uh, came in in 1992 when I was 17. My parents were happy to sign the paperwork to get me out of the house. Uh, <laughs> like, uh, like Paul, I, I joined the Air Force Open General not knowing what I was going to do. It was just an option. My parents said, you can stay here and pay rent or you can go to college and pay your tuition. So I was like, well, I'll go into the military and kind of figure it out. And I found out about Pararescue on day four, watched a sweet slideshow and thought, hell yeah. That's what I want to do. Well, whoever made those videos and slideshows. Yeah, exactly. They had one they had job. An impact, they right? did a good job. Yeah, yeah they got the they hooks did. in us. Um, yeah. It looked pretty cool. And, you know, same thing. Started out with like 120 people and ended up with seven people at the end of it. You know, attrition by quitting or not meeting the standard. Um, you know, it turns out when you don't have many options, then you kind of make your... You try a little harder. Then you try a little bit harder, you know, and people who weren't making it turned, uh, like ended up getting jobs as being uh, a bus driver or a cook, which are fantastic jobs. It's just not something that I wanted to be doing right. when compared to watching these cool videos of, you know, people jumping out of planes and doing these cool search and rescue missions. And um, that was a little more appealing to me. How did you come to Alaska to do it? Well, I was stationed in Idaho. I did two years in Idaho. There was a pararescue team there. And then uh, I got, I was actually looking at getting out. And then I got orders to Alaska. So I came to Alaska and that was the 71st rescue squadron back then at Elmendorf. And uh, yeah, so I got up here and then uh, in 89, they transferred over to the Alaska International Guard as a rescue unit. And I got hired on there and that's where I spent the rest of my career. And it's, it's yeah. awesome. It, it's awesome. I, I did eight years active duty. I was kind of stationed in Florida, Iceland, Japan, and then was going to get out because it was the 90s and not much going on. And, you know, I was getting fidgety. And then a friend of mine said, well, you should come up to Alaska because it's going on up here. It's going on up here and they're doing <laughs> rescues all the time, which is what I came in to do. And, right. you know, I had a couple of missions on active duty, which was great. Um, I was pretty fortunate to do that, but then when I got up here, it was like, oh, well, this is home, and you know, and then met my wife up here and had kids, and and it it's just such a great it's a great place to be a pararescue man. It's like PJ Paradise up here, is what you know what people say out in the career field. You can either do Civil SAR, which we do up here, or you can do. I always say you have two places to go. You can do the thing in North Carolina where you're doing combat rescue with. And you're supporting like the army rangers and stuff like that, or you can be up here and do civil SAR, where you're getting missions all the time. Yeah, and, and still deploying. And still deploying. So yeah, you kind of so. get, you get, you know, when when you're at home training, it's for real because you could be going out the next day. It's not, it wasn't for a deployment. It was for next weekend. You know, <laughs> and you could be on the on a glacier, or you could be out in the middle of the Gulf of Alaska, or you know, right right on flat top where we got most of our rescues. Uh, <laughs> oh, I bet. Yeah. Um, how many-ish, and I know it probably varies every year, like how many missions do PJs, the pararescue, do in Alaska a year? Like one a week, right? Gosh, I'd say it averages one a week. Yeah. I mean, you, you might get three a day or you might go a couple of weeks. 
I'm not saying each individual person, but our right. team will get like, yeah, you know, they may get three a day or they may get one every couple of weeks. It just... How close to a trailhead have you saved somebody? <laughs> Pretty close, like within a mile, I'd say. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, and that's just the way it goes. You know, yeah. it's no, like when people, when people push the button, make the phone call, do whatever, it's because they're in a bad way. Yeah. And, you know, I'm not here to judge anybody for calling. I'm just happy to answer yeah. the phone call. And, and, you know, we always saw it as, as training for more stuff. You know, it wasn't not, not to belittle the experience, but just yeah. the more you do, the better more you experience. are, the more experience you have, yeah. the more mature decisions you make, ideally, um, you know, yeah. I've always said the training you get in Alaska and doing missions, it just trains you for when you go to combat. It's the same, it's the same mental process you're going through when you're doing a mission. Yeah. A combat mission, you're just not getting shot at here. Right. right. Here it's the weather, it's, you know, right. the mountains, it's, the threats are different, but the threat is still there every yeah. single time. Like yeah. there's, there's an, there's an existing threat on every mission yeah. and, you know, the thought process that goes into each mission is is unique and and yet the same, um, but you're not worried about somebody shooting at you here unless you're in the valley, you know, and, <laughs> and they're black helicopters or Spinard. Yeah, right. exactly on the way to work, you know, not necessarily. <laughs> well, so you have, you go and you save these people who are just in I'm this, kidding, Valley. This kidding. this dire situation, um, but you you like they started to do something, but they didn't finish it. But you have to go. You have to save them, start it, and finish it, and get them out. So it's interesting, you know. They there's some people out there who are like I thought I could do this, but I can't, or I'm stuck in this situation. And you guys are like, we have to go in and get that person and get that person out and save them. There's no nobody to, to rescue you guys really when it comes down to it, which I'm sure has happened. But you guys are probably in that mindset. We're gonna go get you. We're gonna yeah. I mean, I, I think when we got the phone call, we were like, well, we're the you know the ultimate solution. So like we're showing up. We're gonna make it happen. However, we figure it out. Thankfully, with the full weight of the Department of Defense and you know all the assets behind us, we're gonna make it happen. You know whether it's and this is another unit, but whether it's, you know, jumping into a sailboat, you know, thousands of miles south of Mexico to save an infant who is, you know, having a fever and is sick right. and needs antibiotics, you know, it's just, it's something to behold to see, you know, C-130s and helicopters and people getting on the ground to come save you because you pushed a little button yeah. <laughs> and sent a signal a out. Button. I mean, that's a pretty cool feeling, <laughs> you know, yeah. as a yeah. citizen of the United States to know that that's possible. Oh yeah. yeah. It's like, the, it's like the bat signal in the sky, but you have a little button. I mean, what's, yeah. what's the difference? Come yeah. save me. We right. need, we need, we need somebody. Yeah. Right. And you know, whether they're like, they're, they're affecting their own rescue, but they're also They're also, you know, pushing the button for us to come out. I've, I've launched on a couple of missions where the person was honestly almost there. Like they were self-rescuing and I almost felt bad. Like, all right, man, you called it. us like you're, you're like half a mile from being back, but you're also post holding up to your waist and it is negative seven degrees out oh. and you're in a Canyon and you know, it's just like, you can see the Alaska factor where people are self-rescuing, but you get there just in time or, you know, maybe, maybe they aren't self-rescuing. Maybe that's it. Maybe they're yeah. all tapped out. So you mentioned, uh, you've mentioned all these different possible places, uh, you know, 
mountainsides, middle of the ocean, uh, wherever. What kind of, uh, you guys are pararescue, what kind of larger team and what kind of equipment, like what comes on these missions? Yeah, it's the, you, you have access to the best of the best. So you wanna go ride ATVs to go pick somebody up, then they're gonna be outfitted with everything you think that they should have. You wanna, if you're deployed and you need to you know, defend yourself, you've got all access to the weapons. If you're gonna go diving, you've got gear that is the best gear, it's maintained to the highest standards, if you're going to go jumping with equipment, like, you know, we at the section we used to have, we call it the section, but um, you'd have an eight by eight by eight cage that looked like REI dive shop, you know, weapons, uh, locker, kind of climbing locker, everything combined within those. And then you had to spill onto the top of your cage because you had so much stuff, you know, you just had to. And you had to be trained in all of it and be proficient to save somebody else's life. Like it's, it's cool. You you kind of feel spoiled. You know, you wanna you wanna parachute two people out of a C one thirty onto the ice cap. Okay, that sounds reasonable. We'll do that. You wanna, you know, jump into the middle of the ocean. You wanna fly a helicopter to go do something in the middle of Alaska, uh, land on the side of a mountain, and you know, pick somebody up. Sure, you have access to that too. Like you. You want to drive a snow machine in, that's a snowmobile for you in the lower 48 or elsewhere in the world, sled. but a sled. <laughs> sled in Colorado. Um, sled yeah, in exactly. Colorado. Um, you know, you have access to it and, and yeah, it's a, it's a little bit like a rock and roll lifestyle, but you're, you're affecting positive things and saving people's lives. With your training, were you just thrown into that or were, was it simulated like, okay, was like faker rescues but you had to go out and you had to do it how was your training well other guys go through uh, scenarios you can't go through every scenario but uh, before you can pull alert you got to pull scenarios like uh, uh, like an, a glacier rescue or uh, a, a jump rescue you got to do all these mass casualty scenarios there's different scenarios you have to do before you can actually be on alert and uh, and the guys are comfortable by the time they come out and they're ready to pull alert they're they're good to go were yeah there, were there any ones that you specifically didn't like or really liked or were nervous about or what's that training just or any of the scenario trainings with the diving the jumping the no i think you kind of self-select you know to be to be in those situations like if I you're think. gonna be in it you're gonna be all yeah you're gonna be it. all in are, are some people less comfortable in the water sure but you know, they make up for it by having other attributes. And, you know, you're talking about two years of training to get somebody at the end of their end of their training cycle. And then that or their qualification to be a pararescue man. And then they go to their unit and then they get more training. And so by the time, you know, they're finally going on a mission, they've had two and a half years of training underneath them they've done scenarios they've been in all kinds of situations nothing is like the real thing but it's at least getting them in the direction to where oh i've i've maybe seen something like this before right. you know it's it's all in the same vein with with minor variations for environment for temperature for threats um you know all of that it's yeah yeah, I mean, it's, your mindset is the same whether you're on a glacier or whether you're out in the middle of the Gulf of Alaska. You're trying to mitigate risk and, and 
get everybody home to include yourself. Like everybody has, you're, you're talking about a bunch of family men, you know, everybody has this like super Kung Fu grip action figure, you know, idea, but like Red's got a couple of kids. I've got a couple of kids. Right. Like we just want to come home to our families and love right. them up. And like, we're yeah. not here to, you know, nobody wants to be on a wall somewhere. From, from, from <laughs> their dead. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Yeah, that seems like a loser died. Yeah, exactly. Like so summit your, or plummet, whatever. So from your first rescue to your last rescue, I mean, I've, I've kind of jumped into a crazy river to save my dog. And it was like the most adrenaline feeling right. for days of that. I had to come down. It was scary. It was, but I did it, you know, it was all that accomplishment. Did it get better or was it always the same every time you save somebody? Did you have the same adrenaline rush? Did you have the same kind of, or by the end, was it kind of like, all right, I got another one on my belt? I don't know if it's really a adrenaline rush. It's kind of weird because when you're, they give you like a brief, like when you're getting, they tell you, yeah, the airplane crash. We don't know if anyone's alive or anything. So you don't know you're, when you're flying out there, like, holy shit, you know, is this guy going to be really screwed up or are they going to be dead? And uh, you get there and it's just like, if they're still alive, you're like, yes. yeah, bring it on. Yeah. Great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, somebody. I see it as like just a bunch of little problem solving issues, you know, issues. Uh, and like adrenaline is the last thing you're thinking about, you know, the rush of it. You're just like, okay, what's the next yeah. What's the next thing I need to do? What's the next thing I need to do? Mm -hmm. I actually was, <laughs> I was just in Colorado four days ago on a hut trip and doing a hut to hut trip. And we came across somebody that needed a rescue. And so like by the numbers, it was me and a couple of doctors and this local search and rescue guy. And we just got to it and got to work. And at one point there was a 14 year old kid that was on this, that was being rescued. And he's like, feels like you guys have done this before. <laughs> and, you know, we were just kind of doing it. And it was so almost, I don't want to say easy because it's not, nothing's easy. You know, we were 11, 11,700 feet. And Where were you? In Colorado, Where? like right outside of Crested Butte in one okay. of the remote huts, the Friends Hut. Um, yeah. And so it was just... You know, a I, lot of snow. Yeah, yeah but you just go to this mindset. You're like, yeah. okay, what needs to be done? I almost felt like a Labrador, you know, like a working dog. Like, all right, what do we, <laughs> what do we need to do? Okay, great. I'll take care of the patients. You stomp out an LZ. You, you know, coordinate with, you know, the search and rescue people back yeah. at this. And your instincts just really kick in, and yeah. Yeah, so and that's just like you know, it's yeah. like a bunch yeah. of yeah. you know, yeah. that's it almost just becomes, I don't want to say routine because nothing's routine because it's always dangerous, but you, you're just problem solving. Yeah. And that's it. So like, yes, adrenaline after the fact and, you know, difficult ones you, a little bit more, but for the most part, it's just a job yeah. and you're sorting it out. Cool. Cool. Before you mentioned all of these, uh, different uh, pieces of equipment and all the different trainings, two and a half years of trainings before you're even a, what, an active PJ. Um, so you're, you're practicing on snow machines with guns, with jumping out of helicopters and airplanes. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, are you all also paramedics as well? Yep, yep, so that, good point. There's medical training that goes with that and so Part of that two-year training and then six-month, like kind of on-the-job training, is you know honing your medical skills, and so you're 
you're working on that stuff, you're nationally registered uh, emergency medical technician paramedic, um, and you, you're practicing that and maintaining that the whole time. And, and really, like, that's, that's one, of the, one of the trades that you have. That's just one of the skills that you have, but one of the more important ones. If, if you can't treat them when you get there, then, then you're just kind of hanging out with them. And so we, yeah, we made sure guys were, were trained paramedics and, you know, we're, it's just always trying to improve the skills. Like when I came in and when Red came in, I, if I may speak for you, you know, it was like to see the people today doing the job is completely different from 1983 and from 1992. And they're so much more prepared and so much more qualified than I ever was when I came in. I'm, I'm amazed at what they're what they're doing. Pararescue, uh, we would love to learn a little bit more about the history of Pararescue. Can Good you... question, yeah. So uh, Pararescue started in 1943. Uh, there was a plane crash in Burma and they people were stuck on the ground, kind of a transport plane had gotten stranded it, they used to, it was a common trade route for planes during World War II. And Doc Flickinger and two survival guys, so a doctor and two survival guys, jumped into this crashed plane and ended up, you know, taking care of them, splinting their injuries. And, and a little while later, I don't know the exact time frame, but they ended up walking them all out and uh, to affect the rescue they you know so they jumped in took care of them treated them and then walked them out because there weren't helicopters at that time so that was the only way they could get out um, and then fast forward through that the evolution of pararescue you know they would drop boats in the middle of the ocean under certain airplanes um, people would then start to parachute in in the korean war you know, i talked to a korean war veteran at one point and he said yeah we just used to jump in with a bunch of guns and sit with the patient you know of a plane crash and then Vietnam was kind of uh, was a great time for pararescue that was kind of the some would say like the highlight that was when pararescue came into their own had a ton of rescues they were doing combat rescue going in under fire saving people hanging down from a hoist plucking pilots from behind enemy lines who had been shot down um, and then there was Grenada and Panama and, you know, fast forward to the 2000s or to Gulf War. There were some pickups there, 2000s, Afghanistan, Iraq. Um, you know, we like pararescue has evolved to meet whatever for, for combat has evolved to meet whatever the need was for the situation at hand. And I think the civil SAR has benefited from that along the way. You know, we've gotten... We've gotten more equipment, some would call them toys, but we've gotten more equipment along the way to affect rescues where we found a shortfall and, and uh, shored that up. And now we're, or now pararescue is a quite capable force, able to get in a plane, a C-17 and fly halfway across the world, jump out you know, to the middle of the ocean, Antarctica, North Pole, uh, all points across the world in a pretty timely fashion. And people are amazed when people pop out of a, a plane under parachute that after they pushed a little button, you know, 10 yeah. hours ago, all of a sudden somebody's showing up. It's kind of mind blowing, I think. Yeah. It so. is mind blowing. How many pararescue men are there currently in the world ish? 
500? Yeah, there's no more than 500 for sure. Yeah. 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 So it's a pretty small group. Um, if you don't know the person, you know somebody who knows the person. So it's kind of hard to tell a story and, <laughs> and not have somebody fact check you. <laughs> or if you do something, you know, somebody's going to call you out on it pretty good. Like you, you can't get away with too much in this career field. Yeah. Um, tell us about the larger picture of rescue in Alaska. Uh, bringing it back just to Alaska and like what goes into a rescue? Tell us um, different scenarios, different factors or who and what are arriving and when and how and all that stuff. So when you call for a rescue, they uh, they first go to like the troopers and the troop. Well, RCC might get the call. And What's RCC? Like, RCC is Rescue Coordination Center. Okay. And they'll get the call and they're like, they'll pick for, like, well, can the troopers do this mission? The troopers say, we can't do this. And then they go to somebody else, like uh, Life Flight. And if Life Flight can't do it, then, I mean, we're kind of at the bottom of the barrel. If nobody else can do it, then they'll pick the PJs or the the 210. Well, I wouldn't say bottom of the I was going to say, <laughs> if the bottom of the barrel is fucking awesome. I would say last yeah. call. Okay. <laughs> I'm just kidding. So, yeah. Anyway. Yeah. If nobody else can do it, then we'll definitely pick it up. And right. We, we're not allowed to take business from the civilian sector. Okay. So we have to remain as the last call. And then when you break the glass, then that's it. Like we're behind the glass. Yeah. But um, what goes into that is, you know, we're just one part of this whole system of rescue, which is, you know, there are C-130 cargo planes that also act at, that we can jump out of, but then also do refueling midair for helicopters that we can fly on, that we can go down a hoist or we can land or we can do a bunch of other things off of this helicopter. But then behind that is maintenance, support personnel, checking your life support equipment, you know, doing the paperwork to make sure everything is okay. Like I said, maintenance personnel, like doing, making sure that the aircraft is the best that it can be. Like every, every step along the way, somebody is doing their job so that somebody else can do their job so that somebody else can do their job to affect right. the rescue, you know, so that we can look like the all-star going down the hoist and being the first person that, you know, the isolated person sees. Like we're the, we're the face of rescue is what we say, but there's so much behind us. There's so many people doing amazing stuff that we get all the glory and, you know, we're the sexy, but there's a lot that goes into how the sausage is made. You know, like there's a lot that goes into up leading up to the point that we actually make contact with the survivor, the patient, the whomever, you know, and it's, it's pretty cool. We never, I never worried about whether the helicopter was safe to fly or the person flying that helicopter was safe to fly. And it, it's, it was a great feeling, you know, to know that you've got professionals every step of the way doing their job and we just happen to benefit and, you know, be the professional that was the soft link. You're trained, you're trained to do it. So yeah, yeah, yeah it was cool. That's and that's nice. just, we're just one component of Alaska rescue. There's right. the state troopers, there's the coast guard, there's the army guard, like there are so many amazing people out there doing all these things. Like we're, if it's in our sector, if it's in our area, then we respond to it. You know, Alaska is one fifth of the size of the continental United States. Like 
you've got the Aleutians poking into Los Angeles, you've got, you know, Southeast poking into Florida, and then Missouri to Michigan in between as the meat of it. And like, that's, that's a pretty big area of responsibility. And then the ice cap on top of that, the North Pole. Um, so you've got a lot of assets here for the state of Alaska with the area that we cover. Yeah. So, and local SAR as well, kicking ass, doing their thing. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Big team effort for sure. Big team effort. So you mentioned earlier, um, you're obviously both family people. Uh, how, how does this affected your personal life, family life? Any, uh. Anything you want to share there? Well, I mean, I met my wife on the job. What about you, Ryan? I met my wife on the job and my second wife on the job. <laughs> my third wife, I didn't meet on the job. I had to pick her up in Vietnam. But uh, What about uh, your kiddos? My kiddos, though. So my, uh, my first wife, she was a radar operator on the C-130s. And she's awesome. And we had two awesome kids out of it. And now my one son, uh, Pete, he's... Uh, Flight engineer on the helicopters for the 210th. Still doing the legacy of rescue. Still doing really good shit. Yeah. He's had some cool. super sketch missions. It's, oh, wow. Yeah. And I'll be a granddad next month. Whoa, congrats. Yeah. So wow. when you say you met your wives, any, any stories you'd like to tell us about that? No, they're all in the gym. <laughs> <laughs> I met my wife... Um, one of my best rescues, uh, but not actually a rescue. My wife accidentally set off a beacon um, and we responded as though it was a mission and ended up flying in really nasty weather on Marcus Baker. She was, doing, she was climbing a mountain and her luggage had her, or her, one of her bags had the, the emergency beacon it accidentally got tripped off. She heard a plane droning overhead and realized because she had climbed Denali the year before and had met people who were doing rescue, had met PJs and realized that that was a C-130 flying overhead and asked her friend, do you hear that? As they're sitting in their tent journaling because it was a storm day and they weren't doing anything except drinking hot chocolate and writing down their beautiful thoughts um, because you couldn't move. We, at the same time, were flying up the glacier on the backside of Mount Marcus Baker from Prince William Sound because the weather was so bad. We were flying 50 feet and 50 knots in a helicopter, which is not a really good place to be. Uh, and then the beacon shut off because she realized that... Um, that there was a rescue being launched to come pick her up that she didn't actually need because she was completely fine. And, you know, opened her bag, saw the little light flashing that said, there's, <laughs> you've called for a rescue. And she turns it off. And a week later, I ended up meeting her because she was getting ready to climb Denali again with another friend of mine who I loaded rocks in his bags because that's what you do to friends when they're getting ready to climb Denali. <laughs> and, uh, and he said, hey, this is so-and-so. She was the one that you got called out to rescue. She didn't make eye contact. And then we ended up becoming friends later when I met her at an ice climbing festival. Nice. So, yeah. So that's how I met my wife, you know. How I, how I met your mother, you know. <laughs> yeah. Is she set off a beacon. I responded, she didn't actually need me, and then we met later. <laughs> That's a lot cooler story than mine. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of cool stories, 
Let's hear some. Let's hear some stories. Let's hear some scary stories, some wildlife stories, some exciting stories. Exciting stories, some or or even just your very first one, if you can remember. Or a helicopter on a cargo, whatever you want. Yeah, I mean, you tell us. You know, so Red, Red jumped into the Gulf of Alaska, like, what, 700, 800 miles south of Kodiak? It was actually 1,000 miles. Oh, oh, there you go. <laughs> I think mine was only 700 miles, so, you know. All right, Red, Red go no, ahead. I, I, did that a, one. I did I did a water jump that was 1,000 miles south of Anchorage and 1,000 miles east, west of Portland. So we were in a hurry to jump because we didn't want Portland to get the jump mission. But uh, we it's always a competition. In. It's <laughs> always a competition. <laughs> but it was a beautiful sunset load. It was actually super easy because I've been trained so well. It was like, you know, the weather was beautiful. We got the clear to drop. The guy had appendicitis. It was a Filipino guy on a big old 600-foot freighter. And we, uh, we jumped into the ocean with our boat. To, uh, it's a Zodiac and inflated it, cruised on over to the freighter and climbed up a rope ladder and got on board and started treating the guy. And he lived. It was cool. Did you take him away? Take him off the boat? Well, the next day, then the helicopters came out and picked us up. It took three air refuelings for the our H60s to get from Anchorage to to the boat and that's the pave hawk yeah okay. yeah yeah so when you say dropped a boat into the ocean does it have an outboard on it and yeah go out okay yeah, yeah it's all it's a deflated zodiac boat okay. and it's like a four by four by four cube okay yeah. so there's a big 16 foot boat with a motor folded into that cube you push it out and then you jump after it and chase it and ideally land right next to it and how far is the jump out of the helicopter into the ocean or the plane. Or the plane. Yeah. It was a C-130. It was, uh, I mean, how high? How high, yeah. Um, it was a free fall, so it had to be 3,000 feet. Yeah. Something like that. Uh, it was a long time ago. It was 20 years ago. Yeah, it was. <laughs> <laughs> and so the helicopters the next day, they came and like landed on this ship yeah. to take this. That's just a cool image. Yeah. And picked you guys up, right, yeah. too? Like yeah, picked yeah. you guys up in the patient? And... It was a two-ship, so... Yeah, they got everybody out. Yeah, it was pretty cool. Do you have you done any um, rescues on Denali? Yeah, I mean, you, we like we both have done multiple patrols up there where you work with the Park Service and do high altitude rescues, and you know you end up picking up a lot of people. Sometimes you're recovering bodies, uh, people who get in over their heads, or people who have altitude sickness, and so you know you end up. Uh, or get frostbitten, whatever. You end up doing some medical support for them as well. Um, Do you, so most of the time you're hiking up to grab them, or are you flying? No, this is you're climbing the mountain uh, with the park service. So you're you're working with the park service. You're doing the same climb that that oh, wow. the person being rescued is doing. You know, we saw it as a training opportunity to work with the park service and get high altitude training, get mountaineering training. Um, and the benefit being they had a rescue asset on the mountain or a medical asset that could could help out when when needed. And it yeah. was we I think they continue to have a great relationship with the Park Service. Oh, for sure, yeah. Who does amazing stuff on Denali as well. Um, so, yeah, it's, you know, and we just link it all back into training. Like, it's all right. just exposure to different environments, different patients, and doing 
doing cool stuff in the name of rescue, I think. You know, like in the end, that's what we're doing. It's helping people out. All right, I got to ask. Say it. Story about maybe going and saving somebody that was attacked by a wild animal. Well, I think we've had a bunch of bear attacks, you know. Ton of bear attacks, but I was never on one of them. But. Yeah, I've been on one, and it didn't. It wasn't a rescue; it was a recovery. Um, you know, which happens sometimes, but it's for, you know, that, that yeah, it's it's pretty grim, but mm-hmm. uh, it's it's not as common as you think. People aren't getting attacked all the time. Uh, yeah, so okay. yeah, I mean, it I happens. Know. It, it's not just the rescue mission, but when you're out there training, you're you're parachuting into these remote areas where nobody is, and there's always the looming danger of bears in the bushes. And yeah. we've had missions where guys have jumped into uh, two bear attacks, and the bear's still out there. So they're parachuting in, they're carrying shotguns for personal defense, but they're jumping into a very injured person, and they've still got to worry about you know, A, jumping in, but then B, once they get to the ground, there's still the threat of the bear that is around in the area. Yeah. And there's been, we would say great missions, but they're not so great for the people on the ground, but, you know, just kind of require a little more critical thinking for the people doing the job, I guess, is what I would say. Yeah. Brent Widenhouse was a ground party on a jump out at Spectre one time. And uh, the bears came out to greet him at the, <laughs> he's like, you guys coming? He was like a Southern guy. I can't speak Southern, but he's like, can you come pick me up right now? There's a bear coming at me. <laughs> so the helicopter came and picked him up and oh, stuff. Wow. But, yeah. Yeah. And we would get the same thing, like sitting in the ocean, you know, like, okay, there's, you know, a shark kind of swimming around underneath me. I'd like to be picked up right now. Right. If, you, if you wouldn't mind coming and getting me. Um, yeah. So, and that's, you know, that's just like training. That's just yeah. the training stuff. How about polar bear? Any polar bear incidents? I've never had any. No. No. No, we don't, you know, we, they're, in Alaska, there are different regions okay. that um, are covered and they're mostly along the North Slope and we yeah. don't, we don't do too much along the North Slope unless it's catastrophic. And so yeah. we're not up there exposed to polar bears very much. I got a funny story about bear, though, before I forget about it. So, like, when I first met bear... Not polar bears or bears, but... Bear. But me, sitting here, this guy. (laughs) So, we were doing uh, water jumps down in Homer, and (laughs) we all get back on the plane to go back to Anchorage, the C-130, and bear gets totally naked, and he goes up in the front of the cockpit, and he goes, Hey, we ready to take off yet? (laughs) And we're like... Who the hell is this guy? Yeah, I never really. Met he was yet. like brand new. <laughs> yeah, I had already been in for a bit, but I was new to the unit, and so I figured I would just kind of break the ice. I mean, that's <laughs> that. It it's actually funny because that's how I started my career. You know, there's in the in basic training, you well when you do the initial test to even try out to be a paraskman, you have to do a swim, a run, and some calisthenics. Very basic, you know, not a lot, but. Um, for the swim portion, I ended up going, jumping in the pool with shorts that were for the masses um, and didn't necessarily fit. And the first two times I pushed off the wall, my shorts kind of came down. So I just stripped them off and swam the rest of the 1500 meters naked. And uh, 
you know, as a 17 year old, like just swimming naked around a bunch of other dudes and not really caring. Um, I think it would be a common theme throughout my career that, you know, everybody all know their first story when they met you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, I don't know if he was naked, but it's a pretty safe bet that he was. Yeah. Plus, when, when, you're, when you're doing your stretching stuff around yep. Gloria. <laughs> what was your uh, what was your longest rescue that you can remember? Like days, maybe that you worked on something. Gosh, that's a good question. <laughs> There's no, nothing longer than like three days. Yeah, I mean, I but I also had. Yeah, I also had a mission that where we jumped into the Gulf of Alaska. Mine was only 700 miles out, but um, we ended up uh, hanging out on the ship and doing karaoke with the Filipino crew, and you know, riding back to riding back to Kodiak, Alaska. Um, yeah, it, it, that was, but that was three days later, yeah. and also we ended up having to drive the boat backwards for a little bit because the bow line got caught up which we didn't realize on the zodiac and hmm. and then we found out and then we were able to drive forward that was a mess up on my part but um, blame it on murph yeah <laughs> do you know how many saves you have under your belt i you mean you're well north of a couple hundred i got a plaque you have a plaque for at least a hundred i got a hundred <laughs> You've got at least a hundred. That's just the baseline, and it goes north from there. I would say they used to do plaques back in the '90s, but I have no idea. Bear, yeah, Bears probably got more. I don't know about yeah, that. I don't know. But probably, I would say between us, we've got a couple hundred missions at least, and you know, a couple hundred, and then some saves off of that. Because sometimes you're, you know, sometimes you're recovering people, which is to say that they're deceased, and then sometimes you're recovering multiple or rescuing multiple survivors off of a mission uh and so you know and but when just, they talk about the saves there's only actually very few saves right in a guy's career right right yeah. yeah yeah and so when you start getting into the triple digits for saves like red it's cool you know it's cool when you think about that there's that's just there's, rcc saying you got the save but there's only a, a few saves Right. In your whole career. Right, right, right. I see yeah. what you're saying. Yeah. 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 For like actual, like yeah, actually, I saved him in the nick of time. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. they're super grateful, right? When you <laughs> save them. Yeah. Yeah. I think they are, you know, although they're also maybe sometimes a little sheepish. Embarrassed. Um, and, you know. They're embarrassed. No. No. They're just no. like, I'm grateful. so sorry that yeah. you, you had to come out. Right. You know, like, I'm so sorry. And. You know, because they feel like they're inconveniencing you, and you're like, I'm just like, here doing yeah, training. Yeah, I'm just doing awesome. my job. You know, yeah, it's like a helicopter. And yeah, parachute. Yeah, it's it's part great. of it. And <laughs> you know, you hear. Uh, I had I had a kid write me a card that said, "Thank you for saving my mom," which was wow. which was cool. Yeah, like, that's really, really. You cool. know, like that's that's pretty fun. That's that's the good stuff right there. Do you have any? Uh, I know he talked to. Do you have another uh, story, a mission that you have that you wanted to Gosh, share? I don't, you know, I mean, they were just, I don't know that I have anything significant. Um, anything that almost didn't work out, that worked out, and it was exciting or, or nerve-wracking or... Uh, How about maybe when you had a, you were like on a scary flight and you almost died or something? What? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's certainly been, you know, like up here, the weather is, you know, is kind of the biggest threat, right? And I, I have been on missions where 
where we have almost turned into a mountain and I've had to say, stop turning that way. And, uh, and we have, we've had to collect ourselves as a crew and say, how's everybody doing right now? Do we need to land and reset and think about it? And, and that's not me necessarily, but that's the whole crew saying, all right, maybe we're in a little bit over our head. And, you know, everything up here is a challenge. Like it's the Alaska factor. So there's, there's either distance or time or weather, or there's always something that's, you know, getting in the way of you and, and what's going on. Um, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I, yeah. I don't, I don't know that I have any specific story necessarily. They all you probably have a lot, but to you, they're probably normal, but you know, yeah, they, yeah. I think to that's us, they're exciting either way. Yeah. You know, even no, if I'm sure that's true. Yeah, getting somebody right. on flat top, you know, it's right. Still, no, I mean like some of the scariest things can be, you know, yeah. like, like out here on flat top or almost being left behind because the weather was closing in and, and you're looking for a goat hunter. And, yeah. Now you're setting up a tent and now the helicopter, I mean, that's, that's one where we were setting up a tent to spend the night and be ready to hang out for a couple of days with one of the survivors. And all of a sudden the helicopter makes a dash because there's a hole in the weather and they're able to come in, pick us up. The tent blows away because we've only got 15 seconds to get on this helicopter and do this thing. You know, I mean, they're, there are some guys who have great missions or at least can tell a great story yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and make, make the mundane sound amazing. Um, yeah. We have a couple people like that. Yeah. Who can tell a really good story. Um, but for the most part, you know, like we're, we're just people walking amongst the city of Anchorage, you know, going to movies and getting called out in the middle of movies and, yeah. and then going to soccer games and doing that bit and, Saving it, people's lives. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> How about avalanches? Any stories that you can think of? No, I mean, that? I haven't had any avalanches. What about you, Red? Uh, yeah, avalanches. Had a, no. But down Spencer Glacier, we had a really cool one. That's right. The snow machine that went in? Yeah. Is that the two snow machines that went in? Two snow machines, yeah. One snow machine went in, one snow machiner, right? Yeah. There was that great picture, the aerial picture, where <laughs> you see the footprints come off of the snow machine and then go into the hole. So the like a crevasse. The, yeah, the you, crevasse. Oh, yeah, okay. exactly, and a crevasse rescue. Yeah, you yeah. were on. You tell us about it. Well, we just got caught on because there, yeah, there was. Uh, we heard there was somebody fell in a crevasse, so we fly out there and we can see the snow machine tracks. And they went into a crevasse. I'm like, okay, that sucks. And then we see this other snow machine that's parked off back a little bit and walking. And then he falls into a crevasse. So, like, both the guys are missing. So, and they're both being okay. Oh, good. And uh, we hoisted the one guy out with the, who was on the snow machine. And then we did a, set up a system and, and pulled out the other guy. He didn't get wedged in. How far oh, down right. did they fall? Yeah, I think it was like 30 feet or so. It was, it was a ways. It was yeah. a ways. We stepped down Eric Sachs. He went down in there and uh, got the guy, and he was okay. If you had to guess, how long was the guy in the crevasse before he was out of it? Probably four or five hours, I'm uh, guessing. Yeah. It just takes a while from when they call rescue to when we can actually get there and stuff. Yeah. Flight yeah. time. Especially on a weekend. Yeah, and you're hanging out near an ice cube basically yeah. you're sitting 
You're in sitting an, ice, an ice box <laughs> for that many hours. But we're sitting there having dinner, and I was like, oh, got a mission. So then you got to go to base and get all your shit together and get on the plane and fly over there and do that stuff. But, yeah, and I think yeah. that's worth mentioning, which is, you know, everybody is ready to do this at a moment's notice and dash out the door. You know, you've got helicopter crews and C-130 crews and maintenance and, you know, pararescuemen and everybody else ready to just step out the door at a moment's notice on a weekend or, you, you know, at two in the morning yeah. to go out and do these things. And Are it's you on a, call at all times? Or on do call you at all times. some days off? No. Well, you cycle in and out. Of, there's always somebody. There's there. always. But, oh, okay. Yeah. So yeah. a person doesn't do it all the time, but a person is always on call like there's always somebody who is standing by to go out and do this stuff which is cool yeah like that's a cool feeling to know as a citizen you can sit there and push a button or call 911 and somebody's gonna right you know drop everything drop you know their beer yeah no no beer i'm just kidding (laughs) Um, but you know leave their kid's soccer game to go like do this thing or leave the middle of the movie right when it's getting good and you know, go affect this rescue. Yeah. There's always two people on helicopter, two PJs on helicopter alert, or two PJ and two PJs on Herc alert, C-130 alert. Ready and then you got in. all the maintenance people, and you got all the the flight crew, and all those people are on alert also. So it's, yeah, it's pretty fun. We're just a small part of that. Oh, that's great, and it's great to know that there's. At least that little bit of comfort level when you're out there on some adventure that you are a phone call or a... You need to help yourself. So I was thinking about a fun mission that I did that was super interesting. Um, When I uh, flew out to go get a woman who had broken her femur on a snow machine down near Seward... And we, we flew down there. The weather was so bad that we couldn't get up to altitude. It was up at a higher altitude. And so we were going to like ski up to the person. That was going to be a long night. We had some people from out of state who weren't as necessarily trained in, you know, cold weather operations. But there were three snow machiners at this trailhead who I hoisted down and I pled with them, hey, do you guys know where this snow machine accident happened, where this woman is, you know, had a broken leg? And they're like, yeah, totally. We totally, we were just there. We just saw her and said, okay, can you give me and two of my friends a ride to that place? (laughs) Uh, And so, so there were three very good Samaritans, albeit very big snow machining Samaritans. And there were three pararescue men who, had, you know, survival equipment and medical equipment on their backs, riding up, riding tandem on the back of these (laughs) snow machiners up this glacier, sometimes having to get off and walk, sometimes having to ride with them. And we finally get to, um, to this woman who has a busted femur and that it takes a lot of energy. It turns out she went over a jump the snow machine fell on her leg, broke her femur, which is hard to do. Uh, we ended up, the weather was so bad, the helicopter couldn't come in. We were communicating with the helicopter. So we start digging a snow cave. We pull traction. We get some meds on board. She's feeling pretty good. We were not going to ride her out on the snow machine because it was so painful. It was, you know, eight or nine out of 10 on the pain scale. Um, 
but we get everything ready to go. We're getting ready to dig the snow cave. We've got her all set up and all of a sudden I can see stars above me. So I radio to the helicopter or do satellite communication to the helicopter that I can see stars above, above come in right over the top of us, circle down. We're going to have sleds set up with a V into the wind with their lights. Yeah. And you know, what would have been a super long night, they ended up coming in, picking us up, you know, everybody helped out. So you had these good Samaritans who gave us a ride. It was 11 miles on the back of a snow machine, which is a lot when you're hugging another man (laughs) with your face buried into his back. And you're like, I love you, man. Not like you think, but I love you. And thank you for not making me walk 11 miles in snowshoes or ski and whatever. Um, and so the helicopter comes in, scoops us all up. We say thank you to like the model citizens who gave us a ride up. Thank you to the model citizens who like helped on the scene and we get her back and, you know, we get her back to the hospital and her, you know, her femur looks like, like two sticks laid on top of each other because it was a clean breakthrough and. Um, that was, yeah, yeah, it was one of my more interesting ones. It could have been a very long night or a couple of days if we had gotten weathered in, but thankfully there was a break in the weather. So yeah, so that would be my, I think one of my more memorable missions. Um, you know, and a couple of young guys who had come up from out of state who were like, whoa, do you guys do this all the time? Like this is, what what is even going on? I don't even know. I've never been on a snow machine. Yeah. That was pretty fun. That's a great story. I love that one. I love that one. Yeah. We're open for other stories if you want. Yeah. Well, the sheep hunter mission was, it was pretty cool. I get called by midnight and uh, they're like, yeah, what happened is they were up sheep hunting over by Nebesna and the father has watched his son watch up go up this ridge and shoot the sheep and after he shot the sheep he's trying to make his way down and he fell and he went unconscious so then how far did he fall i think it was like 40 feet or something like that it was it was a lot and his dad so then his dad went up to go check on him and uh, he was unconscious it was like i don't know mile and a half up or something of this valley and uh he spent the night with him and his name was uh anyway i'll get back to that (laughs) (laughs) you'll you'll think of it rick and jake i can't think of their life name but they uh, came and like met up with you later right well but go ahead, sorry. So, so yeah, so we get called, and uh, what happened is his dad um, had to leave his son there and went all the way back to the road, which is like a 12-hour experience to get back to the road. And then he got in contact with the troopers, and then the troopers called us, and then we showed up like, I don't know, 2 in the morning or something like that. And... Uh, He's like, yeah, I don't think my son's still alive, but he's over here. So he he directed us to where his son was at, and it was still dark, and we're searching and searching, and it started to get a little bit light. And from goes, the yeah, helicopter? Yeah, from the helicopter, and he goes, yeah, he's up that drainage right there. 
and it was too steep for the helicopter to do any hoist or anything so they dropped us off like down in the valley and we hiked up so when we were hiking up it was me and uh, another PJ from Kentucky and uh, Rick his dad and we started hiking up and I started getting close to where I thought he might be and then I hear this huffing and I'm like oh shit because I see this big black thing and I oh great now there's a bear <laughs> and I get a little I'm like well I'm not gonna stop now so I'm like what the hell is that and he goes it was actually he had thrown a tarp over his son and his breathing was like going so yeah so everyone gets up there we couldn't hoist out because the 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 ridges were too hot too steep for us to hoist out we have a what 240 foot yeah uh-huh. cable it was too steep to do that so we had to take them down about a half mile on a pole steep litter, terrain which, which was probably a really dumb idea he was super hypothermic and he was like going through like it's all you could do he's doing yeah he's having convulsions and shit and uh, like oh my god i hope this guy makes it but uh so we get to a place where we can do like a 200 foot hoist and we hoist him out and uh took him over to glen allen and did a transfer and he was unconscious for three weeks and then i I wouldn't actually visit him a couple times and then he came out of it it was cool yeah and, well, that's uh, and that's one of those that we were talking about earlier like that is actually one of those nick of time like real saves like yeah. you if you weren't there yeah that wouldn't have turned out the way i was super did. scared he was gonna die when we were taking come on a pull this litter going through oh, this yeah. rocky terrain yeah and he's like going through uh, and he took oh, him shit. on a what a pull pull this litter it's this guy God. it's tarp. just yeah it's almost like a tarp with handles you know but it's lightweight so you can actually hike with it you know there's there's like good, better, best, right? So like best would be having, you know, full cervical support and doing all these things and a litter that you can easily carry. And and then at the other end of this is like this polis litter, which you can actually hike with. So like the the best is super heavy. You wouldn't hike with it. There's, you know, there's no way that a person would want to carry it super far over land. And so you kind of have to make do, you know, there's no, there's no page in a book that says exactly what, what each rescue is going to be. That's, you Collins. just sort of make it. Collins is the last name. <laughs> Rick and Jake Collins. Holy there shit. There you go. Nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nice. You yes. got one, you're using yeah. it. <laughs> but, uh, Rick, Rick was definitely the hero in that thing. He yeah. left his son back Oh my gosh. Yeah. Like, what a hard thing to do. He's yeah. amazing. Yeah. And you met, you ended up meeting up with him later, right? Oh yeah, lots of times, yeah, yeah. And I still talk to Jake. Do you really? Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Oh my god, I love that. Uh, I believe there was one other story you mentioned. Somebody did. The helicopter that crashed between. Oh, fire. yeah, the Fire Island one. Yeah, that was the one. Again, gosh, you got to have more than that. Nick of time. <laughs> you jumped in and. So Fire Island is just a couple miles off of Anchorage Airport here in Anchorage. And uh, I was on the treadmill, and I get called for alert, and they go, hey, a helicopter just crashed. So I run and get on my shit together and stuff. So 17 minutes 
we took off and we got to this guy, two guys. And uh, so what happened is the helicopter was going from Fire Island and they got in the really bad weather and uh, crashed and two of the guys survived. Um, of course, I can't remember. Their name. And this is midwinter, right? Yeah. Yeah, because yeah. it's nighttime. Well, it was it was day when we picked them up. Okay. Yeah. Which is nighttime. <laughs> <laughs> Let's be honest. A deep sunset. So we get there and we see the guy and we come down and we pick him up, one of them, and pick him up and pick up the other guy. But the really cool thing about this is the one guy, Dick. Uh, I can't I can't think of his name right now, but. Uh, he goes, yeah, we cr- we took off and we crashed. And he said he was floating. He was like backstroking, trying to get back to Fire Island. And then he kind of was just about ready to go unconscious. And he goes, he heard the helicopter. And then he went unconscious. Wow. And the next thing he remembered was being in the, hel- in the hospital. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Another nick of time. Yeah. yeah. That's wow. pretty cool. Yeah. That's, That's very cool. That's very cool. That was me and Mario. Yeah, yeah. I know. <laughs> it's so cool. What a great mission. I know. It's like everybody has these missions, you know, that everyone else is jealous of. You know, it's just you wanna you wanna do the best stuff and you want you want everybody to live always, but you also want to you want to be there if it's going to happen. Yeah, you want to be there and like, you know, doing your job and doing most of the training that you've been doing in order to to help out. Like it's just a it's quite the quandary. You're like, yeah. I hope you get hurt, but not too bad. <laughs> um, and I'd like to save you. Yeah, you know? and right at the nick of time, just, like just, just right, right at the nick of time. Like, I want you to you. really need me, but not too much. Yeah. You know, it's a sweet spot in rescue where you get to feel like you're actually, a, you know, like doing something and, and need it, but not, so, not too much. Yeah. What do you, what do you guys do now? I still work at the PJ section. Okay. They say I have um, Stockholm Syndrome. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I've been doing it for 40 years now at a yeah. PJ section. Crushing it. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, you're kind of the sage. Like, everybody comes to seek your advice still because you have, like, the corporate knowledge from way back. You're like you're like a redwood. You're just standing there. <laughs> like, come, come talk to me. <laughs> It's great. You're super... We we had this uh, head doc for a while. His name was Jeremiah. They call me the dirty Jeremiah. <laughs> they come to talk to me when they don't want to talk to the, the yeah. real shrink. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. That's great. How about you? Um, so I am a helicopter ski guide for some seasonal work. And then I also do some medical training as well on the side. Like I kind of run a small business and... Yeah, yeah. So, do some operational medicine training, and then stay at home dad. Nice. Hardest nice. job there is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All yeah. the work, none of the glory. Yeah. <laughs> That's not an easy job. You yeah. gotta save their lives like every five minutes. Oh my gosh, <laughs> I love it. It's like a three hundred and sixty degree street fight with teenagers. <laughs> <laughs>
button press away. Any advice for people in Alaska that are doing some kind of backcountry adventure? Uh, get one of those. I don't know all the devices these days. Right. There's so many. I would say just have a plan. So if you don't have a device in order to do something, then you know, tell somebody when and where you're going to be and when, when they should start doing something about it. You know, otherwise, if you have a device, then have a plan to communicate with somebody. But I think it's always good to step out the door with a plan before you go on all these grand adventures. You know, even if it's just telling a buddy, hey, I'm going to go do this. I'll be back in six days. I think if I'm gone for eight days, then, you know, call somebody and let them know my general plan. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I think that's that would be my advice. And be prepared. Like, you never know. Alaska is fickle and can drop the hammer pretty quick. Yeah. It can be 70 degrees and all of a sudden it's a snowstorm. Yeah. Even, so. as you know, even in Colorado. Yeah. Last week, three yeah, days ago, you saved somebody. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It can happen anytime. Yeah. Yeah, it's just be ready. Well, I'm going to say thanks. Yeah. Thank you so much. Podcast. This has this been is, great. It's been great. Thank you, guys. I'm glad that uh, we were able to do it. And uh, yeah. Anything else? No. Love you guys. Thank you yeah, guys. Thanks. thanks for everything you've done. And uh, yeah, thanks for saving all those lives. <laughs> thanks for having us. Yeah.